Amen. Amen. What's up, Resonate? Yeah. Happy New Year. Almost. We're almost there. I mean, the holidays are just about over, which is uh, maybe some of us are pretty excited about that. Oh, by the way, if you're one of those people that's like, there are 50 weeks until Christmas, we're not friends. And so it's cool. Like you can have your joy in that and celebrating 50 weeks to Christmas, but I'm not with you on that one. Anyway, let's just enjoy what we had this year, what God gave us this year before we start looking too far into the future. You know, one of the things that this time of year does, though, is it gives us an opportunity. It gives us actually an allowance and an invitation to look to the next year and start asking some questions. And specifically asking a question like, what do I want to be different in 2024? Now, you can ask that in a broad sense, and you can say, well, I'd really love my political party to be in charge. We got an election coming up next year, so buckle up, everybody. Um, I'd really like uh, my city to be different. I'd like my family to be different. And just the new year kind of gives us that lane to ask the question, what would I like to be different in the world specifically? And we might even turn it to ourselves and say, what would I like to be different about my life in the next year? If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5, we're going to be looking at a passage that I love. I love what God has to say and what he does in this passage. And a little context about it, we're not exactly sure who wrote First and Second Kings, um, but, the, but First and Second Kings deal with the dynasties, the kingly dynasties in Israel. And by the time you get to Second Kings, okay, this is where it gets a little confusing, so stay with me here, okay? The nation of Israel splits, and you have Israel in the north and Judah in the south, okay? Does that make sense? The nation is split into two, civil war, Israel is in the north, Judah is in the south, Judah is going to retain the dynasty of King David all the way to King Jesus, who reigns today, amen, and in the northern kingdom, you have, it like changes every week. It's a different family every week, it's uh, turmoil and chaos most of the time, and in the northern kingdom, especially in 1 Kings, you see the work and the ministry of the prophet Elijah, who then passes the baton in 2 Kings to Elisha. That's the last time I'm going to do that, but I want you to know that there is a difference between the two. In 2 Kings, you see much of the ministry of Elisha. Now, uh, if we're going to understand the passage, um, or if we're going to understand the teaching this morning, I think it's important for us to have that context. And so, if you would, I invite you to rise to your feet, and uh, I want you to be ready because we are going to read 19 verses of 2 Kings 5. Oh, I heard some groans. Okay. Heard some groans over there. That's all right. Hayward's not groaning. Here we go. Verse 1, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, 
go now, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and he went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage, but his servants came near and said to him, my father, it is a great word. The prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, when I'm in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, go in peace. And this is God's word for us today. And all God's people said... Amen. You may be seated. New Year's is about change. It is about looking into the future and saying, what, what could be different? What needs to be different? What should be different? What, and maybe a better question, what does God want different in my life in 2024? Uh, we would be foolish to think that we're all fine, and that everything's great. And I don't think anyone in here believes that, but sometimes we can easily act like that. And so in the topic and the theme of looking at change, going from 2023 to 2024, and the passage that we just read, our sermon is gonna take us through three avenues. The first is why change is good. Secondly, why change is hard. And thirdly, where change starts. We'll start, though, with why change is good. 
I wonder what many of us have said in our quiet moments or even with a spouse or a friend or a, a brother or sister in Christ. Uh, we've confessed or said, I want this to be different about me in 2024. I, I wonder what many of us have said. I wonder what you said. I could share with you after the service some things that are going on in my head. One of them is to be less pessimistic about the world. It's just a spiritual gift I have to be pessimistic about things and see what's wrong about everything. And then, and then it furthers by I need to tell someone what's wrong about this thing right now. Uh, but I, I believe that that's uh, not fruitful. I believe that that's not from the Lord. And I want that to be different about me in 2024. Many of us, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's an internal thing. Maybe we want to lose weight. We want to get a better job. There's a home project that's been staring us at the face. In like 2024, I'm going to change that paper towel rack. I'm doing it. This is going to be the year for us, baby. Uh, many of us are in 2024. We are looking for new health and healing in our life. Uh, maybe there's been something that's been dogging us for a long time or an ailment and we are committed to whatever it takes, or, and maybe whatever it takes is specifically starting with going to the Lord and just saying, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, would you heal me? Um, it might also be a spiritual thing where we say, this is the year, Lord, I, I believe that you can free me from this sin in my life. I believe that there is this spiritual ailment that has plagued me. And God, I believe that you love me. I believe that I'm saved because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. And this is the year I would like that reality to impact this sin in my life, to rid it from me. Or maybe it's reconciliation with a brother whom you are estranged to. Whatever it is, I think we all could agree, as we've already said, that things could be better. As you take an honest look at your life, you might be able to say, I hope that you're able to say with some humility, things could be better about me, about my circumstances, and things need to change. Eric Raymond, a pastor, said this, that it's been said that people hate change, but I don't think that's entirely true. While many people enjoy routines and familiarity, they also welcome new things. Among other things, we like new seasons, we like new restaurants, we like new technology, new friends, new adventures. We do like new things, so change is a part of life. We might call it growth or transformation or maturing, but in essence, what we're doing is we're going from one stage to another. We're moving from one, uh, one phase of life or, or one uh, purpose in life or whatever it is to another. We want things to be different, and for many of us, the, the change that we want in 2024 is we actually want to have a new perspective on the world. We want to have a new perspective, or you might say new beliefs in the world, how we, how we view the world, how we view ourselves, how we view others. Uh, I shared with you that I, I have this pessimistic view of, uh, of all things, and I'm asking that the Lord would, and that comes from a belief, that comes from a belief that I am assessing the world perfectly, Right? If you're pessimistic all the time or a lot, it, it comes from this place where you believe that how you see the world is correct and you know best how to fix it. And so, I mean, it's a prideful thing. And so we're wanting a new perspective in our lives. 
Um, and with perspective, we might say, okay, now that my perspective is changing, it's also time for my practices to change. So if my beliefs are being affected, if what I believe, how I see the world is going to be changed by God, then now it's my practices. So if I believe one thing, if I, oh, here's a belief. If I believe that a healthy lifestyle is best for me, that's my perspective. If I believe that's the best thing for me, then my practice is going to be that I'm going to eat well, I'm going to exercise, and I'm going to get lots of sleep, right? Because the, like those are the top three of being healthy, right? So good food, good exercise, and good sleep. If I have a belief that all people are created in the image of God, then my practice is going to be one of humility and kindness and generosity no matter who is in front of me. So you see that our, our beliefs, our perspective on the world inform our practices and then what changes or then what, the event, what inevitably happens is now we live with a new purpose in life. And we realize that life is not all about me. Life is not just for me and me being happy. That life is about what, what, what God has set my eyes to, how that, about that belief, that reality then informs my practices. And now I'm living for God's perspective and God's practices and not my own. We all want change in our lives because we know that something is wrong. If you're a Christian, you would say, you realize, you would admit that your own walk with the Lord is flawed because they're of this great problem of sin. And this leads me to why change is so hard. And we're finally gonna look at our passage. By the way, I don't know if you'll remember this, but a few months ago in a sermon I preached on the trustworthiness of the scriptures, you may remember uh, one of the evidences of the trustworthiness of the scriptures is how uh, it, when you read things that just don't seem to make sense, like why is that there? That is an evidence that that really happened. So consider this passage this morning. This is a history of, of, of Israel and the dynasties of Israel. And there's an entire chapter dedicated to a pagan Gentile army commander who has recently kicked Israel's butt. Okay. Now, that would only be, if you were going to make up a story about the Bible, about the people of Israel, you would not include this because this is not really, doesn't really put Israel in the best picture. And if anything, it puts one of their enemies in a good place, as you'll see at the end. You wouldn't include it unless why? It actually happened and you were just reporting uh, the story, just reporting the truth. So you have Naaman, who's a Syrian general, he's an enemy of Israel, and he's this mighty man, he's this strong man, he's a, he's a man's man, it says he's a, it's interesting, uh, there's places in the Old Testament where the writer calls something a mighty man. Of course, you have David's mighty men, and we all celebrate them. The fact that he is, is called a mighty man says something about, who, about his stature in the world, but he has a problem, he has a limp. What does he have? He has leprosy. He has leprosy, so uh, he, it, it, it chocks him down. Uh, and he, the, the way that the story is normally told, I remember this from my Sunday school days, 
uh, the way the story is normally told is he has this slave girl from Israel and she's nice and kind and she's sweet and she says, oh, I'm, I'm a slave to Naaman, but I really want him to be healed. And then Naaman goes to Israel and gets healed. And the way that the Sunday school lesson ends is, see, be like the little girl, be like her. Now, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, that we shouldn't aspire to be kind and selfless and, and act in humility, but I think there's way more to the story as we're going to see. Uh, Naaman's posture towards getting the change he wants, look at what he does. Okay, he's the general of the army. He's got to leverage all of this power, and he gets an endorsement from the king of Syria. Look at verse 5, and the king of Syria said, go now, I will send a letter to the king of Israel, and he brings this enormous payment. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and here's the high point, 10 changes of clothing. Now, some of you out there have way more than 10 changes of clothing. We'll just leave it at that, okay? And so you're like, that's not impressive. That's impressive in the ancient world. Almost everybody in the ancient world, except for the high society, the elites, you had, you had one set of clothing and you wore it all the time. And laundry day was the same as bath day, right? Like you just had one. So the fact that Naaman is bringing 10 changes of clothing says, hey, I'm living large and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go buy my cure. I'm going to go buy my cure from the Israelites. And this is how we normally, the, what Naaman does is what, how we normally mitigate change in our lives. We will leverage our position and our power in any way possible so that we can get what we want. We'll use our own strength. Uh, we'll just say to ourselves, I just need to use my mind and make out uh, the, the right routines. I've got to get up early. Um, I need to, to use the people that are in my life, right, in order to get what I want. That's the other way. We we leverage people. We will step on anybody in order to get the change. So if you want a new job, if you want a promotion, if you want your yard to look better than your neighbors, it doesn't matter. This is now a contest. This is capitalism, baby. And I'm winning, right? And, and we will do it. We will use other people to get what we want. And we'll leverage everything we have, our possessions. I've got money. I've got time. I've got energy. And Naaman did all of these things, and look what happens to him. Verse 6, so he takes his endorsement to the king of Israel. Verse 7, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and to make alive? Now, this is a moment of spiritual clarity for the northern kingdom, because all of a sudden, the northern kingdom uh, is, uh, the northern king is saying, I do not have the ability to cure you. I'm just a guy on a throne. And in Naaman's mind, you got to understand, he comes from a culture where the king is the one who mitigates uh, God's will to the, all the people. He's a representative. In fact, he might even be uh, a deity himself sitting on the throne. That's Naaman's perspective. That's why he doesn't go. You remember, he's, the, the girl says, you should go see the prophet in Israel. And where does he go? He goes to the king because he believes that the king tells the prophet what to do, who tells the gods what to do. And that's how he's gonna, going to get what he wants. So he's going to leave, but word gets to Elisha, the prophet, and he sends for Naaman. Naaman shows up, shows like he says, it shows up in all of his horses and chariots. He's got all of his gear, all of his buddies, all of his entourage, right? And uh, it says that, <laughs> says that Elijah, the prophet doesn't even come outside. 
He sends message through proxy to Naaman, like, hey, tell him to go jump in the river seven times, right? And that's it. And Naaman is furious and disappointed. He says, I'm, I was a- he's angry. He went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. And then he starts trashing the uh, rivers in Israel. He's like, are not Arbana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turns away and goes in a rage. And what's Naaman doing here? He is, in his mind, again, he's appealing to some sort of large religious ceremony to go through religious motions to get what he wants from God. He says, I, I, I thought all I needed to do was to bring the tithe, bring the money, do, jump through all the right religious hoops, and then I would get what I wanted from God. And we do the exact same thing, don't we? We in our minds, and nobody says this out loud, but we will default to a mode of thinking or a belief and believe that if I do the right things, if I'm a good enough person, if I follow the religious script, if I go to church, if I tithe regularly, if I serve on a thousand different teams, then God will see that I'm serious and then he'll give me what I want. Or in some ways, he'll be obligated to give me what I want. And the problem with this is that it displays or it is evidence of two very wrong things that we believe about God. And the first is that he can be bought and manipulated. And again, we don't ever say that. No one would ever say that. But can I just challenge you for a moment? If you've ever thought or said to God, you owe me, that comes from a belief. And and, and I've been there, okay? I've been in that place where I've said that to God. But that comes from a belief that if you do the right things, then God will act and move in your life. And it's just a matter of religious motion. The second wrong belief is that God helps those who help themselves. And which is, you know, you hear people say, it's not in the Bible, but that belief is that all change and transformation is on me. I'm the arbiter of it. I'm the one that has to make it happen. Only I can bring about what I want. And so what does this point to This points to the fact that you and I have the wrong perspective in life. This points to the fact, again, that I am the arbiter of the change and transformation in my happiness, that I can manipulate God, that that if I'm just good enough, God is obligated to be nice to me. And this belief then informs our practices. Because if... I believe that the change in my life is on me. If I believe that I'm the arbiter, that God owes me, then our practices will start looking like this. I'll help someone. I'll serve someone if it will get something for me in return. So the classic is, and I'm not asking you to raise your hands, but the classic is, 
if I help my friend move, then he or she is obligated to help me move or something else, right? Uh, Truck owners know that one big time, by the way. (laughs) Sorry, I'm leaking a little bit, sorry. We will, our practice will be to use our power and, and our position and our authority to influence others for our benefit or to get what we want. These become our practices. I mean, just think about how in your life have you ever used your position, have you ever used your position or your authority or your power to mitigate change in your life, maybe position, maybe a circumstance to go your way? See, that's an evil practice, and that comes from a perspective or a belief that I am enough, and I sit at the top of the hierarchy of my life. And what that does is it gives us a purpose. It only shows that our purpose in life is to improve our own quality of life. I'll work hard for my family, uh, but it's really so that I can feel self-satisfied. I'll say that I'm working for change in my life, but it's really because I don't want to be embarrassed by by the way my life is going. I don't want other people to shame me. And like Naaman, when the circumstances of our life cannot be changed or manipulated to fit our desired outcome, here's what we do. We look for someone to blame. So Naaman is blaming the circumstance. Naaman is blaming, he, he, he was expecting this big religious ceremony. When he didn't get it, he starts blaming the ceremony. He starts blaming the man of God. And so often what we do when we don't get what we want, what we think we want, what we think we need, we begin to blame God. And I would say this, and I'm going to say this carefully. My guess is that many of us in this room who are mad at God are mad because we didn't get what we want and we thought that we did the right thing to get what we wanted and it didn't work out. And so now we're blaming God. Now I'm saying that carefully because I'm not saying it's a sin to be angry about your circumstances or to, or to say, God, what the heck's going on? What I'm talking about is a deeper issue in our hearts where we point the finger at God and said, you owe me. Because that is a more sinful, evil place to be. So what hope do we actually have for change in our lives? We know the world is messed up. We know that we're messed up. We know that change is hard. So let's go back to the story and see where change starts. Verse 13. But his servants came near to him. Okay, he's ready to go. My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Some of your translations say that his flesh was restored to that of an infant, right? You ever felt like baby skin, right? It's like, it's amazing. And we're always trying to get back to that, right? We get older, we're trying to get back to to baby skin soft. Naaman jumped in the river, came out, and he was was flaking, and now now he's perfect, Now he's like a newborn baby skin, right? And everyone's like, what are you using? What product are, right? And he's like, man, it's just creek water, you know? Naaman has received a healing and his life is forever changed. Now remember, 
Naaman was expecting and wanting the big ceremony. Naaman showed up bringing his payment for the miracle. I'm going to just jump through the right hoops and do the right thing to get what I want from God. And both were rejected. There was no ceremony. And Naaman was right. He is right that the rivers in Syria are much more impressive than the river Jordan. So what happened? Naaman wasn't healed because of anything he did. In fact, in this story, there is only, uh, if there's anyone less deserving, it's Naaman. Why was Naaman he- healed? Because of the grace of God. Yeah. And that's it. Amen. That's it. You have an enemy of Israel. If you notice, the writers of the Old Testament are very good at writing and pointing out who the bad guys are in the Old Testament. They don't flinch. Naaman, in the eyes of Israel, is a bad guy. And he shows up and God heals him. Why? By grace. And that is it. What is grace? Grace is Grace is favor. It's a a favor from God. It's a gift. It's unearned. We sometimes use it, in a theological sense, we sometimes use it as as a catch-all word that describes all the good things that God gives us, who by nature we deserve, in fact, the exact opposite of the good things that God gives us. Think about it. What did Naaman ever do to deserve God's favor? What did Naaman do to change his own circumstances? Nothing. And what does that teach us? Listen, that teaches us that change and transformation in our lives does not start with you and I muscling up, doing the right thing, getting our lives together. It starts with us on our knees before God and saying, you are the only one that can change me. You are the only one that can transform my life. You are the only one that can bring hope and healing and health and anything good in my life. You are the only one because you are the only one who is powerful enough, loving enough, and sees me as an image bearer. God is the only one. He's the only one that can do it. He is the true arbiter. God is the true arbiter of change. God is the supplier of everything that is necessary. And look at what happens to Naaman when he experiences the grace of God. All of a sudden, his perspective on life completely changes. Look at what he says in verse 15. He says, then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. Now, this is bigger than you think, because back in the ancient times, gods were thought to be uh, regional. They were thought to be only existing. So like Israel had their own gods, right? God, excuse me. (laughs) Whoa, calm down. Egypt had their gods, right? Syria had their gods. All of the different nations and people groups had their own deities, and everyone just kind of believed, well, this people group have their deity, and this people group have their gods, and that's just kind of how it all works. Naaman goes into Israel expecting just some kind of ceremony. His eyes are opened by the grace of God, and the first thing out of his mouth is he says, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Everything else is nothing. There is one God. That's why the story of Ruth is just bananas. 
that this Moabite woman would renounce her people and her culture and her gods and say, say I, I, whoever, who your God is, I will follow. He is now my God. That's why it's bananas uh, in, when, in God in the, Old, in the Old Testament prophetic books when he says, I'm going to gather people from all nations. Israel was like, yeah, you're going to gather us. And God's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to gather people from all nations because I am the God of all people. I am the God who sees everyone and I'm going to gather all to myself. That's why the reality of God's grace has made Christianity a, re- a religion that spans the entire globe and is not centralized to one people group. And Naaman's perspective, his beliefs have completely changed. How? By the grace of God. But he's also transformed his practices. Look at verse 15. He says, behold, there's no God in all the earth. So now accept a present from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives, this is Elisha, says, as the Lord lives, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Now, you remember, there's a difference here, because first, what was he bringing? Payment. He was bringing payment for his cure. And now, what is he bringing? A gift. He's bringing a gift. He's bringing what? An offering. He's been so touched by the grace of God Everything he brought is now not because, oh, I owe this. I gladly give it. And one of the things that happens when we experience the grace of God, one of the evidences that we've experienced the grace of God is our practices go from, from this idea of, well, I know I need to get up and have devotions in the morning. Or I know I really need to grow in prayer. Two, I'm going to set my alarm to get up 10 minutes earlier because that time in the word is going to be spent communing with my heavenly father. I want to grow in the spiritual practice of prayer because as I do, I will hear more the voice of God. We go from things I have to do to I get to do. Do you see the difference? And do you know what the dividing line is? It's grace. It's grace. If you see spiritual practices as something that you are required to do as a Christian, then I don't think you understand grace. I may have just stepped on your toes, but I'm okay with that. I have big feet. I do it all the time. If you see prayer and generosity and service and kindness and the fruit of the Spirit as things that you have to do because that's just what Christians are and that's what they do, I don't think you understand the grace of God and His goodness towards you. I'll say it differently. I believe that may be an area where you can grow. How about that? And don't we all have an area to grow in understanding the grace of God? Amen and amen. So his practices begin to change, which then leads us back to that Eric Raymond quote that I said at the beginning. Uh, Eric Raymond at the beginning says, yeah, people say they hate change, but they actually really like change. You know, we love new restaurants and stuff and technology. But then I, I didn't read the whole quote. This is the end of the quote. 
this is what he says, this is why I tend to think it's not change that people resist so much as being changed. It's not that we don't like change, we just don't want to change. But as Christians, we must remember that change really is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Did you know that God wants to change and transform you? Did you know that? Do you know God looks at you and says, I love you in spite of your sin. I love you in spite of who you are. I, I love you. I, my son died for you while you were still enemies. And I want to transform your life. We, the, 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 the biblical word is sanctification. I want to transform your life so that you will go from I have to do this to I'm becoming this and you're becoming more and more the person of Jesus. The, the, the likeness, the, the, the lifestyle, the personality, the practices, the mindset, the heart set. You're becoming more and more like Jesus. And why is it? Why would God want us to move into this place? Because he knows that human flourishing, our flourishing is not in a place of, well, I have to get up and pray today. I have to go to church. Human flourishing comes from, I can't believe that God would love me in all of my sin. And he wants me to know what righteousness, true righteousness looks like. That's why he puts the righteousness of Christ on me so that I might live out a new kind of way of living the way that God always intended. Like the work of us going, the Bible calls it one degree to another. The work of us becoming more and more like Jesus is not because God thinks you're a failure. It's because he wants you to to thrive. He wants you to flourish in life. It's his joy when we begin to say yes to him and we allow him and we say, please transform me from this body of death into one of life. That's the joy of God to transform us from one to another. And do you know what that does? That absolutely transforms our purposes. Now, this is my favorite part of the passage, but if you look at verse 17, it says, if not, let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or any sacrifices to God, but to the Lord. In this matter, and then he says, when I go into the temple, when I bring the king of Syria into the temple, I'm going to have to bow down. Please pardon your servant when I, uh, when I carry out my, my duties as the commander of the army. So let's start with the first thing. Why does he want two mule loads of earth or dirt? Why does he want that? Well, okay, let's go back. Remember, ancient people believed that gods were regional. And so he made, Naaman may say, there's no, what did he say? There's no God in all the earth except in Israel. Okay, and we'll forgive his bad theology. We all have it, right? And so, but what does he do? He says, I need two mule loads of earth, two mule loads of dirt, because I got to go back to Syria. And here's what I want to do. I want to take... Israelite dirt, and I'm going to put it on my front lawn. And so when I bow down and worship, I'm, I'm, I'm worshiping the God of Israel. See, Naaman has a new purpose in life. It's to worship the God of Israel, to worship the God of the earth. And also he says, forgive me, I'm going to have to still carry out my, my duties as the commander of the army. So I got to take the king into the temple. Forgive me. Now, what's going on here? Well, Naaman is, you remember, he left Syria with leprosy. He's going to come back looking pretty good, right? 
going to come back looking really good. And people are going to say, what the heck happened there? And now Naaman gets to tell the story. Now Naaman, who's going to dump the, the earth, you don't dump earth in your kitchen. Maybe you do, but you shouldn't. You, you dump it outside, right? And people are going to see this. He's going to have to tell the story. See, when God's grace impacts us and our life begins to change and our practices change, one of the things, one of the changes that happens is we realize, and this is a joy because it frees us, that life is not about me being happy and trying to be as happy as I can and trying to have as much stuff and materialistic things as possible. Life is actually about living under the banner of my gracious king, serving him and pointing other people to his grace. That's a joy because don't we want other people to experience that grace that we have experienced? I mean, we'll, we'll set up Yelp reviews all the time of an ice cream shop that we loved and we won't even think about it. The world needs more than just good food. The world needs more than just our opinion on what's going on in the world. The world needs healing, and healing and change and transformation of our world is not going to come next November. Sorry, it's not. It's not going to happen with any kind of movement on earth done by human beings. The change was already put in motion on the cross. And so that's the thing that we point to. That's the only thing that we point to. So I want to end talking about grace and how it transforms our life. Grace simply says this, I'm not enough, but Jesus is. Um, I'm more sinful than I realize, but I'm also more loved than I can possibly imagine. Grace says, even if God doesn't answer my prayers in the way that I want him to, he will answer them in the way that, it, that he sees fit, that is best from his perspective. And grace allows us to say God's perspective is better than mine. God's perspective, God's answer to prayer is much better than anything I could dream up. And so I, grace is going to allow me to trust in God's way and God's perspective. Grace says I don't have to be in control because God already is. So my question for you is, what kind of change do you want to see happen in your life in 2024? What do you want to be different for you personally? My guess, again, is that we all have something or things in our mind, and that's great. But can I encourage you, can I exhort you, can I urge you in this, that whatever God puts in your heart or in your mind, that your next step is not to figure out a plan and say, here, God, here's my plan. Please bless it. But that your next step be, God, I believe you want this to be different in my life. Show me what you want me to do. Would you go to the Lord first as a joy? Because God is the only one. God is the only one who can bring about the change and transformation that our lives need, and he will do it by his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this morning. We thank you, Lord God, that we have hope 
in your grace through Jesus Christ. None of us in this room deserves any good thing that we have received. None of us in this room have any hope outside of your kind grace that you bestow upon us. And my prayer, uh, Father, this morning, as we're gathered, as we're thinking about the new year, as we're thinking about our lives, as we're thinking about what we would like to be different, maybe uh, what, what should be different, what can be different, that we would not lay out our plans, we would not try to figure out, okay, what's the best thing I need to do in order to make this happen? But first and foremost, we would bring everything to you, and by your grace, we will see things change this next year. It will not be by our hands. It will not be by our cleverness. It will not be by our wisdom. It will only be by your loving grace that you bestow upon us. And so, God, we thank you for this reality that we live in every single day. And I pray, even if we forget this and then remember it again in April, that, God, your grace, I know, I believe that your grace will continue to see us through. So we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.